Welcome to Deep in Dizziness, the show that explores the latest information, treatment, and techniques that provide hope to those suffering from dizziness, vertigo, and balance problems. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Brooke Pierce and Dr. Chelsea Nava. Hello, and welcome back to our podcast, Deep in Dizziness. My name is Dr. Chelsea Nava, and this is the yin to my yang, Dr. (laughs) Brooke Pierce. We specialize in leading vestibular diagnostic testing and therapeutic techniques for the dizzy and imbalanced population. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Very exciting. So today's topic is all about providing helpful resources and education for the dizzy patient. So we continue to dig into this topic and specifically reasons why a patient would need vestibular rehabilitation therapy for persistent symptoms of dizziness related to um, what's going on with regard to postural instability. So we're going to be discussing common trends used globally to treat issues affecting the inner ear. Our special guest for today's show is Dr. Margie Sharp. She is a leading vestibular physiotherapist in Australia, as well as the director of the Dizziness and Balance Disorder Center. She is extremely well-established amongst healthcare professionals and the dizzy population. She continues to advance diagnostic methods to examine the function of the inner ear and develop science-driven treatment approaches. So without further delay, let's introduce Dr. Sharp. So thank you so much for being here today. It's pretty amazing that we're able to chat with you, us in Los Angeles, you in Australia. So thank you for being here. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you very much for your invitation. It's a pleasure to connect with like-minded people and spread the positive um, approaches that we have for helping people with dizziness and imbalance. I think the the more we chat with people locally and globally, it, we're really hoping to to connect patients, and and it, it is such a passion. So thank you so much for joining us today. All right. So before we get started, for the listener that doesn't quite know what a physiotherapist is, can you give a brief overview of what this entails? Yes, um, we use the term physiotherapist, whereas in the United States and Canada, physical therapist is um, the title. We do very similar things. We graduate with a baccalaureate and then can go on and do um, higher degrees if uh, that's the direction we wish to take as a clinician we can work in the paediatric field or we can work with young adults, work in mental health, also work in um, different areas with adults from uh, neurological disorders, trauma, head trauma, road accidents, then there's orthopaedics. It's a very rich field um, in which we can go into sub-disciplines. So I have always had a passion for brain behavior relationships and hence I've worked in the neurologic field and for a good many years now I just decided that I really liked the sub-discipline neuro-otology so it means more to people I think if we say vestibular 
therapy, vestibular therapist or physiotherapist rather than a neurootologic physiotherapist. But it's really the border between the brain and the ear, if you think of it that way, neurotology. So very similar to you people. Our healthcare system is different, but that is irrespective of what we do when we're registered as well. All right. So you've been treating dizzy patients since the early 80s. What's your story behind this? In, in other words, how did you become interested in this specific patient population? As an undergraduate, I vividly remember becoming interested in the vestibular system. There was something about it that attracted me and it just stayed with me. And I reached the point, a fellow did a fellowship at Boston University, Sargent College, some years ago, and it was postgraduate work. And there uh, was a very rich environment and my passion for the vestibular system really came to life because across the river, the Charles River, there was MIT and uh, some of the famous uh, scientists actually worked or had worked at um, MIT and a little down the river was Harvard University and that was another exciting area where there were um, vestibular clinicians and these were all medical and um, non-medical people such as Dr. Lou Nashner who was the first generation of bioengineers. So that really sealed it for me. This is what I wanted to do. It's very exciting, it's very challenging and I like problem solving. I just have found it a, a fascinating field and we're still learning. Most of the work being done that's um, pushing the barriers uh, is um, by um, medical people and uh, vestibular scientists. Um, Ian Curtois um, is one, Professor Ian Curtois. Uh, Professor Michael Halmagi, um, he's a clinician and works uh, with uh, Professor Ian Curtois. And I travel every year I'm going and spending time um, at conferences dedicated to um, the dizzy patient and uh, their medical conferences by and large. So um, it's, it's exciting and I like learning new things and then taking them with me to implement in the clinic. Mm -hmm. Now, in your clinic, what are the top three or four diagnoses for your dizzy patients that you see? I would see many people who have benign paroxysmal positioning or positional vertigo. Um, that's the most common vestibular inner ear disorder. I also see many people who have vestibular migraine that was unheard of some years ago and considered uh, rare and we now know that um, that is not the case and it has been accepted by the International Headache Society. So that's helped everybody and I also see um, vestibular neuritis. I see many different types of people. The other 
condition is a bilateral uh, vestibular failure, failure that frequently goes unmissed because those people don't complain of dizziness. They have balance problems and um, they just, like many dizzy patients, go from one practitioner to another to another searching for questions and um, feeling very frustrated. Then um, a rare condition, mal de um, that is prolonged due to passive motion, could be on a boat, um, can be motor vehicle, can also be um, train travel. Um, that I see those people and I use um, a protocol um, devised by um, the late Dr. Dai from Mount Sinai um, in New York City. And uh, uh, he and his team collected um, uh, a lot of data over time. And since then, Viviana Mucci um, has uh, done a, a lovely study um, with sham controls and found that um, her results concur by and large with Dr. Dai, and it's not a placebo. Um, it does work, yes. But uh, I, because it's rare, I don't see those patients every week. Uh, but people come from all over Australia and um, New Zealand uh, for treatment. Now, in your clinic, what type of testing are you doing, actually, um, to diagnose these patients um, in the clinic? Okay. Um, I work uh, with a, a virtual team. Um, I have uh, an excellent uh, clinical psychologist um, and also uh, ear, nose, and throat um, specialist. In South Australia, we do not have a neurologist who's trained in neurotology. Nevertheless, I've got um, those people in Melbourne, which is not very far away, 50-minute flight, and then in Sydney, which is, you know, something like two-hour flight. So Melbourne works much, much better. Um, most of the time... Um, BPPV is fine. I've had um, video frenzel goggles for several decades and um, I use those uh, for my patients because the whole pie test can pick up many other forms of nystagmus. So um, it's really handy. And uh, BPPV uh, by and large is um, straightforward. Sometimes there's a, a tricky case, but because I can record, uh, I can always send that quickly with modern technology to a colleague, say in Sydney or in Melbourne, and get their opinion. Um, so that's that one. Vestibular neuritis, I, I do have the otometric um, suite of programs uh, that I'm able to uh, run. I'm not able to do audiology. I'm not an audiologist. And so I refer people to a, um, an ENT 
who can do the audiology. Um, it's like sometimes someone comes to me because I don't need a referral from a medical practitioner and they're actually having an acute episode and it would appear to be Meniere's disease. I just make a quick phone call to an ENT and say, I have this person with me and I believe this is what's happening and uh, would you be able to see them? Uh, so that has worked very well. And Adelaide's very small. It's just over a million people. So uh, it's um, not like a huge or LA, mm -hmm. <laughs> New York City. <laughs> so that's really good. I do have patients who are dizzy, but in fact the dizziness is uh, related to mental health issues. And uh, that's where... I reach out to the clinical psychologist who's extremely good and understands vestibular problems. So patients don't have to coach him, this is what Meniere's disease is or da-da-da. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. works really well. So I can do balance tests. The history is the most important. <laughs> Sit and listen to the patient and be on the same page. They can be shy um, to describe things because they think I'm going to think of them as being silly because they've experienced that before. Oh, that wouldn't happen. But, you know, I say, no, just tell me because that can help me help you. So um, I find I get a huge amount of valuable information from the patient. And then it's really checking your hypotheses, like the history strongly suggests it's BPPV, do the um, standard, gold standard tests and you've got BPPV generally, but you just, um, you need to check that it is BPPV and not just go, oh, well, I think that is and I'll just go ahead and treat it. So I don't do VEMPs. Um, VEMPs are very popular in Australia. The Sydney group developed C-VEMPs and O-VEMPs. Um, I don't do those. I think that the majority of people I see, I can work out if they need to see, have further tests that I can't do. Mm. Cool. In regards to kind of going back to that mal-de-debarkment syndrome, Mm -hmm. other dizziness-related conditions, how do you incorporate your use of optokinetic stimulation for treatment? The protocol uh, that uh, the late Dr. Dai organized, it was uh, the person is um, exposed to a, a total display of black and white stripes that are moving. And whilst the stripes are moving and they could be going like a huge wall, it incorporates their peripheral vision. And whilst they're just looking straight ahead, the practitioner just moves their head uh, slowly side to side. And the exposure is um, uh, varies. What I have found uh, is... Um, a limited exposure um, with the stripes 
going left to right. And uh, then next trial, they go right to left. Um, and it can make people very ill. So it's better to just uh, um, do it, start off very slowly. I can give you the uh, papers if you wish um, so that you can see the setup and the, the publications have got very nice pictures as well. So it's not sort of a wheel where you look at a wheel uh, spinning around. Um, I have used that for years when people are very um, visually oriented uh, to the point that it's uh, counterproductive. So getting them to stand on different surfaces and move on different surfaces whilst looking at this moving wheel. And um, that too can make people feel very uncomfortable. Um, but I'll alternate it. I won't go all one way or or, um, or the other. I, I do alternate um, clockwise, counterclockwise. So I don't know if that... Um, Help, is helpful to you, but the treatment of MDDS, the use of optokinetic stimuli there is very different and uh, based on um, physiological um, principles. We do not know at this stage what causes it. Um, that will help us immensely. Um, but we now have a treatment that honestly does work and sometimes you do feel like the fairy godmother that you know wow this is you know you just sit there very quietly and and uh, then the patient says oh oh they go off you do some exposure then I'll say now just go down to the mall and walk around and I'll see you back here in 15 minutes and I just wait patiently and they come back and they go, they say, oh, you know, I could stop at the traffic intersection and I wasn't moving around. I was still, so still. And um, th their faces light up. So, you know, clinicians, we're all the same, I think. You just get so excited when something has been helpful um, because that's why I'm doing this work. Um, it's nice to help people and it's lovely to see good results. So, yeah. Now in your clinic, so you, you refer back to Dr. Dye's protocols and are you implementing, so with, with that specific patient example, with the optokinetic stimuli, are they coming in for 20 minutes a day, five days consistently, or what uh -huh. does that look like for you and, and your patients? Um. For those people, uh, they come uh, for four consecutive days and um, and then uh, there's two-hour time slots each day, um, preferably the same time of day, and they're exposed, they're exposed to the stimuli and then... Um, it depends on the patient how much um, exposure and then they um, go and do some homework like walking around and different things. Uh, so it's not 
sitting down in front of the stimuli uh, for two whole hours and having your head moved. Um, it's intermittent um, breaks. And a lot of it does evolve around the patient uh, and their tolerance. Now, what innovations, because that, that's pretty phenomenal, and I know that that's a recent advancement in, in what Dr. Dai and his team was able to put together mm-hmm. and, and really kind of what's, what's hopefully going to become pretty mainstream. Um, what innovations throughout your career do you think have been the most beneficial for the Dizzy community in regards to diagnosis and treatment and, and therapeutic options? Because sounds like that, that piece of the puzzle is a big one. Um, is mm-hmm. there anything else that comes to mind for you with regard to, um, you know, kind of the, the dizzy patient overall? Uh, yes, I think uh, the greatest uh, advancement is that we now have what I would call a vestibular gram. I used to look at the auditory um, gram um, and go, this is such a nice chart. It's international. Everybody understands it um, who's been trained. And we just didn't have anything like that. And we had the caloric testing. Um, we don't do rotary chair work in Australia. And many patients complained how uncomfortable calorics could be and they and some would refuse Mm -hmm. so um the head impulse test which was developed in sydney slowly i watched it being developed over decades and just the bedside was amazing to have that but now um we can um, do better and it's objective. So, and not only that, there is um, also CVEMPs and then came the OVEMPs. So at this point in time, we can check all the canals and the saccule and the utricle. And I think that is just huge leap forward. I know not all countries do CVEMPs and OVEMPs and there's lots of um, discussion, but, you know, I see it as a huge positive and just the head impulse test alone is far more comfortable uh, and you can retest, but you won't be able to retest someone on the <laughs> caloric for good reason. Yeah. You know, once they've had done. it, they go, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> So I think that's a really a great leap forward. Also, we because of technology and the advances, we are able to, um, we're finding things and learning more about the vestibular system itself um, than ever before. And I know when I first started in the field, there was the um, BPPV was the posterior canal and that was it and then at meetings I would hear someone present a neurologist present I think this person may have lateral canal horizontal canal BPPV and uh, gradually we've come to realize that it can affect 
all three canals and having friends or goggles ha- has made a huge difference. Um, Professor Halmagi just said to us in a uh, conference one day, because he's a great teacher as well, and he just said, you know, if um, you're serious about this work, you need, and he held them up, the, these, these goggles, uh, so that you can see the vestibular system working in its pure form in the dark. And I, um, my career has been enriched very much by people like um, Professor Halmagi, Ian Kurtois, um, uh, David C., many other people, um, because of their experience and they're always asking questions. Mm. So they're some of the things I've seen. I think having something for MDDS is great. Mm-hmm. Um, where we haven't started our project yet, the research project, but we're wanting to look further into vestibular, no, visual-induced dizziness um, and um, and um, I'm working with um, uh, Dr. Viviana Mucci and Dr. Shirley Brown um, and their scientists and we, I'm I'm confident we're going to find um, new things. Um, and if it's not that these people have additional problems that's causing VID, um, then we'll know that if they're normal on these other parameters, we go, okay, it's something else. So whatever happens, it's a win-win situation. Going back to those patients that aren't necessarily improving from your treatment or the optokinetic stimulation, if they've been diagnosed with malday debarkment, what are the next steps that for treatment that you do for this patient population? That's a good question. Um, it's common amongst people with vestibular disorders um, to have um, high levels of anxiety, um, can be depression. Um, they may have had um, mental health issues before they had a vestibular problem. On the other hand, I think some people develop mental health issues because they're struggling to find someone that can help them and they're just hitting a brick wall every which way they turn. Uh, It works very well with most cases. Um, I can sort of through chatting um, with patients uh, raise feeling anxious, you hard on yourself and so on and suggest um, seeing um, Anthony, the clinical psychologist. The majority of people will take that up um, but there are always some who don't and uh, all I can do I always write to the um, patient's general practitioner uh, whether they have just come to me without a referral because we can do that here uh, in Australia in physical 
therapy, physiotherapy, um, suggesting um, other things. Many people with MDDS uh, do have um, not only MDDS but significant um, anxiety and depression and that requires specialist treatment that um, I'm not a psychologist, um, neither am I a psychiatrist. So it's um, trying to um, move them in a direction that's most appropriate for their needs. But, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make, make a drink. Mm -hmm. So we get you get the hard patients um, and that they don't want to do anything. Um, they're complaining, but they're, it's talking with psychologists, it sounds like in some cases the disease has become the person's identity and that is all tied up with um, psychology and, uh, and we're limited in what we can do. Mm-hmm. But I... I just feel it's important that uh, you just, you know, from my perspective and philosophy, there's no point having them come and using vestibular therapy as a crutch when, in fact, the problem is not a vestibular problem. Mm-hmm. So you probably face that too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's, I mean, I think you just so eloquently you know, kind of walked through, you're utilizing the resources that you have and the the specialty that you have um, and using a multi, you know, disciplinary approach. But if they're not able to leverage that or willing to leverage that, um, you know, you do kind of get into kind of a, a no man's land where, you know, you're not able to to get them what they need, which is, you know, a return to, you know, kind of a pre-symptomatic state. Um, Now, as far as innovations, because I think, you know, you have some really exciting things that we talked or kind of chatted about the VHIT and and really what's going on um, with the VID component. Is there anything else um, with regard to innovations that you feel are on the forefront um, that you're excited about with regard to treatment or even with regard to, you know, just the dizzy patient in general? I'm working with a group in... Germany uh, on a dynamic uh, balance uh, assessment tool and so and I I was there last year and it's uh, nearly ready to be um, uh, uh, shared with the rest of the world and uh, it's it is simple it's very easy to use and the um, you wear this little belt and you can walk around so you can get people standing doing the Romberg for example and then you can get them just walking um, you can put them to onto the um, tandem gait test uh, standing on one leg but even moving around you could put them in their kitchen and uh, get them moving and, and look at their balance. Uh, that, I believe, will be um, excellent when we have it because uh, static testing is one thing and it's helpful, 
but uh, so often falls are happening when people move. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know there are falls, unconscious collapses, etc. But many times people are moving and um, they fall over. So I think that that's going to be a really uh, wonderful tool. What I think is a really interesting statistic in the United States is how many specialists that these dizzy patients will see before they're actually diagnosed. And so depending on the literature, kind of the the site that we source, or excuse me, the the um, yeah, the site that we source, um, it can be between four and five different specialists. Yes. Um, are yes. you finding the same things in Australia and, and yes. you know, the frustration level that these patients have um, when mm-hmm. they hit your, your door or come into your clinic? Yes, uh, they have been searching and they're genuine people. They're not what we would call doctor shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, they really have a problem. I would say a good 96% of the people who see me are self-referred, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, they've uh, given up. The Stematil is an anti-emetic um, used here uh, a lot, and they're given Stematil in order to help their dizziness and help their balance. Well, more people are just questioning the general practitioner now saying, I'm not nauseous, I'm not vomiting, I am not dry reaching, why give me that? And they check the internet, which is fair enough, Mm -hmm. and they check the internet and they say, yes, and it makes you dizzy. It makes them lightheaded. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it can make them drowsy. And it's not going to do anything for a vertiginous problem unless there are other vegetative symptoms that need to be dealt with. So we see that a lot. And now and again, the beta histine circ is uh, here. It's a lot more expensive. Uh, It's not on the public drug list. That is generally only used with um, many years patients, but sometimes does work for people who have vomiting. But it's not going to resolve the um the vertigo there's more patient education to do but there's a lot more education to do at the level of our um general practitioners because they give people brand daroff exercises to go home and do and they haven't even done a whole pike maneuver to check and i don't use brand daroff exercises that they're superseded then the patient has heard from someone, they come to see me. I tried that and it made me so sick, I gave up. I didn't do it again. I said, good, just put it in the bin. (laughs) (laughs) We don't use that any longer. Um, And if I had vertigo, um, there's no way I'd do it. Having had vestibular neuritis a long time ago, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it. So um, it's. uh, I think we just have to work keep working at getting the message out because Europe, the same problem is occurring in Europe. Mm -hmm. So it's not isolated. Mm -hmm. You often feel isolated, but it's good when you talk to other people outside Mm -hmm. of your Mm -hmm. state and country. Mm. Yeah. And and the other thing that we, I find is that 
uh, everything is BPPV. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> well, I know, it's, I know it's very common, <laughs> but um, they roll over in bed and they get dizzy. So the general community also think that vertigo is a disease when it's a symptom and like vestibular migraine can mimic BPPV, mimic many years disease and yeah they're the two main ones and um, so you've just got to be so so careful and that's not certainly not appreciated by other therapists in what we call the musculoskeletal area mm-hmm. they they don't have what I call a neurological mental set um, it's black and white uh, and so they think oh you just turn the head da 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 and that's all okay if you follow that it doesn't really work like that in the clinic um, and they will just oh yes I must have seen some nystagmus and treat the patient for BPPV when in fact it's not always BPPV in the, in the ear. So there's a lot we all have to keep doing. I think all of us that are passionate about the field are going to continue repeating the same message um, in different ways to different groups. And I think the patients want to learn and they like to ask questions and it's important to answer them. Uh, often general practitioners don't, they're so busy, medical specialists don't. But I think if patients are demanding, that's a very good impetus to keep because the change will come from outside, not inside necessarily. Often it's the outside pressure and the cost. People have all these head scans, um, this and that, and it runs into hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And you think, well, if you just did a whole pipe manoeuvre or sent the person, I get a number of GPs and others that will send people to me to screen, but if you just did that, it would be much less expensive to the person and to the public purse because our health care system's a bit different but no they they do what they do so there we are yeah and I think it's it's exciting like you said to really kind of make sure that the people who are passionate and knowledgeable um, have a platform and I think that's why we were very excited to share um, you know some time with you and really kind of hear your experience and what you're providing to your patients um, down in Australia and and really continue to kind of echo the message um, that you've you've been demonstrating your entire career so we really appreciate you taking the time today, spending some time on our podcast. Um, and we would love to have you back as we start to get things rolling, because I think there's so much knowledge and so much information that, that you can continue to share. So where can people find you? So what is your website? What is, um, kind of your social media handles? And we will give you another platform to share that information with the, the audience. You've got my email address, haven't you? So it's all on the details are on my on the center's webpage. Do you have that? We, w- this is for our listeners. Yeah, though. go ahead. I'm gonna oh, you you okay. say it out loud. So yeah. The um, website 
is www. and then all one word dizziness balance disorders dot com dot au amazing okay well thank you so and much the email is um just info at the little symbol and then once again dizziness balance disorders dot com dot au perfect perfect thank you so much dr sharp we appreciate it and we are going to sign off so thank you so much to our listeners for diving deep into dizziness with us with the world-renowned dr margie sharp Thank you very much. It's been most enjoyable. Bye-bye. Have a nice evening. I know. You too. It's morning here. (laughs) Join us again next time when Deep in Dizziness offers important news, solutions, and advice to help those facing the challenges of dizziness, vertigo, and balance problems live a happier life. To reach Dr. Brooke Pierce and Dr. Chelsea Nava, Call 310-954-2207 or visit them online at dizzyandvertigo.com.